Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm speaking today with David J. Hand, author of Dark Data, Why What You Don't Know Matters. This book was published by Princeton University Press this year, and it's at once a critical monograph on the practice of data analysis organized around a new framework and taxonomy, and a popular introduction to the field replete with entertaining and evocative case studies, including many from the author's own research experience. Going far beyond the statistical treatment of missingness, Dark Data presents an enormous range of topics from visualization and fraud detection to model simulation and experimental design through the lens of uncollected, misrecorded, concealed, or otherwise inaccessible data. I'm excited to talk with David through some of this content, but I urge listeners to consider having a read of the whole book for themselves. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for joining me. I wonder if we could begin by having you talk a bit about your own background, your mathematical training and your research trajectory, and how you came to write this book. Sure. Pleasure. Um, well, I, I started with a, a bachelor's degree in mathematics, and I think, you know, at, at least in the past, most statisticians have started with a, a mathematics background, even though, in my view, the two disciplines are completely different. So I started with a, a bachelor's in maths, and then I did, I, I specialised in mathematical physics, actually, but then um, did a master's in statistics, an MSc in statistics. I can remember talking to my tutor at university, and he said, well, you could carry on in physics or you could do statistics and be able to get a job afterwards. So it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> and it turned out to be right. And statistics has really come of age recently. Um, I followed that up with a PhD, which was very much at the interface of statistics, AI, machine learning, that kind of thing. And in fact, the PhD was in an electronics department. Then I you know, started my career proper, if you like. I worked as a statistician at the Institute of Psychiatry in London, which is a postgraduate medical school of London University. Spent 10, 11 years there, then um, to the chair of statistics at the Open University. The Open University is a distance learning institution in the UK, has a huge number of students, uh, which it taught through, um, in those days, it was through the mail, but nowadays, of course, it's through the internet. And then after 10, 11 years there, I moved to Imperial College to head the Department of Statistics and the section of statistics there. Um, I, after 10, 11 years there, I spent eight years at Winton Capital. I have to say, throughout my career, a statistician, I always wanted to solve problems that people cared about. So I did a huge amount of consultancy, mainly in a pharmaceutical, financial sector, but all sorts of different problems that people wanted answers to. I wasn't particularly interested in just um, solving problems that nobody actually cared about. I could get a paper out of it, which nobody would read or anything like that. I wanted to solve problems people wanted answers to. So a lot of consultancy work, and then eight years at Winton Capital as their chief scientific advisor, um, where they had a, 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 an interesting place to work because um, very challenging inferential statistical problems, partly because the signals in their sort of investment world are so tiny, and wonderful data sets, massive data sets. Um, but then I went back, it was sort of sabbatical for, for a long time, for eight years, and then I went back to Imperial, where I, where I am now. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in summary, statistician wanting to work on real problems. And so what led you 
from your experience as a statistician working on real world problems. And I wonder if you could also comment a bit whether there was some tension between your appointments at university and your consultancy work. But how did that lead you into the process or the desire to put out a book on stat on statistical methods and data science methods organized around the principle of dark data? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the short answer to that second question is that during my consultancy experience, I encountered lots of problems where mistakes were being made because people weren't looking at the big picture. They weren't thinking, what might we have missed or misunderstood or, or, or whatever. In some domains of statistics, like survey sampling, this is well understood. People understand non-response because you ask someone a question and you don't get an answer. So it's obvious that you're missing something. But in many other areas, the sorts of things described in the book, it's not so obvious. But the mistakes, the, the mistaken actions as a consequence can be, can be just as serious. Your, your first question was an interesting one. Um, was there a tension between my academic work and, and my um, consultancy work? The short answer is there wasn't a tension. They sort of worked synergistically, if you like. Interesting problems came from industry or whoever I was doing the consultancy work for. That led me onto the need to develop more theory, which would feed into academic papers. The academic papers would then feed back to boost the consultancy work and so on. And I have to say, different universities have different attitudes to consultancy. Some um, don't let people do consultancy, which is, of course, very narrow, uh, because as, as the example I've just given illustrates, the, the challenges of consultancy work can lead to solving important problems, can lead to important academic uh, uh, research. No, I, I agree that that's an important, that synergy is really important to the development of new, of new theoretical mathematics from my own perspective. And it's something that in my own training was less appreciated than it might have been, but it's become more and more a feature of not only my own research, but those of uh, mathematicians whom I have talked with and statisticians as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. So a lot of books, both specialist and popular, focus on you know, increasingly tangible roles of data and algorithms in our societies and in our everyday lives. With this book, you've carved out your own perspective by focusing on the data we in the royal we have, um, but on the data we don't have. So what does this perspective bring to our understanding of concepts and techniques in data collection and analysis? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. For, for obvious and perfectly sound reasons, most books focus on the data you do have. You're not going to teach someone regression analysis by saying, let's suppose that we haven't got the data we need. You know, you know. Um, So quite naturally, especially in, in the early stages, you say, look, these are the data sets. So I want to understand the relationship between these different variables. And these are the data I'm going to use to do it. But I think as you become more advanced and as you encounter real problems, um, you recognize that there are inadequacies about data. Um, so for instance, um, any real data set, okay, so, so you might teach a student, you might say, here, here, here are the data you need to calculate the regression, this is the least squares algorithm, these are, the, these are the equations you need. But then they go out and look at a real problem, and then they discover that, well, somebody hasn't just given me the data, the data's been collected, there are all sorts of shortcomings and weaknesses about the way the data's been collected, and they need to go beyond what they've been taught and ask themselves, how might those weaknesses and shortcomings impact my conclusions? And that's really what, what drove the book. The, the consultancy work I'd encountered where there'd been all sorts of problems, inadequacies in the data, 
um, leading to possible mistakes and the need to educate people about the potential risks and, and what they can do about those risks. I have to say that I believe that all statistics teaching, um, certainly if it's more than just one module, if it's a whole statistics degree or something like that, should definitely include modules on missing data, rough data, measurement error, all these sorts of problems on dark data. Because if it doesn't, I think these students are not properly educated to, in, to deal with the problems they're going to encounter in the real world. And I'd love to get into some of those examples. First, I have what I usually have a sort of design question about the book. Could you say a bit about the cover design, which I found fascinating as it evokes what I took to be the central analogy of the book? Yeah. I'm, I'm delighted that you said that. The, the, the cover has got a sort of hole in it, which you have to look through to discover what you're missing. Um, I, it was the publishers who came up with that design, and I thought it was a brilliant way of um, demonstrating this sort of core concept of the book. So I'm, I'm delighted to hear you say that. Clearly it worked. Yeah. May I ask, is it also meant with the interior um, uh, hardcover being black to evoke the idea of a black hole and that astronomical uh, mm -hmm. metaphor to dark That's matter, right. dark energy. That's right. I mean, the reason that I've used the term dark data is because of the analogy with, with dark matter. Um, people thought they understood, you know, the way the universe worked, uh, the way matter uh, and, and so on worked. And then they observed that the rotations of galaxies didn't conform to this understanding. Stars, stars weren't rotating around the center of the galaxy at the right speed, if, if theories about gravity and so on were correct. And one way to correct that apparently anomalous observation is to suppose that there's more matter in the galaxies than you can see, that there is in fact dark matter. And the existence of that dark matter has a big impact on understanding the way the universe works. And it's exactly the same with, with dark data. The existence of the dark data that you haven't seen can have a big and, as, as the book shows, potentially fatal, if you're not careful, impact on your conclusions. Now, you introduced this 15-type taxonomy of dark data at the end of chapter one, I think it is. But instead of just go through them as a list, I thought we could just bring them up as they arise from other topics that we can go through. So in chapter one, you showcase several ways that differences between the data we observe and the data we don't influence our world and our perceptions of it. As an example, could you explain to me why when I ride the bus, it's always more packed than average? Yeah, yeah. I, I think perhaps the easiest way to see this is to take an extreme. I suppose that we've got a, a, a thousand buses and that nine, 999 of them were empty, but one was packed. Then if you ask passengers to say what the average number of a bus, a number of passengers on a bus was, was they wouldn't see all the empty ones. They just see the packed one. And they say, well, you know, the bus, the average number is a huge number of passengers on the bus. They're missing all the, for obvious reasons in this extreme case, they're missing all the empty buses. And in less extreme cases, the same sort of argument applies. So you're getting a, a biased or distorted impression of what's going on. And that, in some sense, is the whole concept which underlies dark data. You're getting, because you're seeing some of the data and not other parts, you're getting a distorted impression of what's going on. I remember coming across this paradox in a different form when I first started training in network analysis. Um, network analysts talk about the friendship paradox or social network analysts, uh, by which my friends on average have more friends than I do. And it's this sort of self-deprecating 
way of describing what it's like to be a network researcher, but resolving it was was a pretty fun experience for me early on, and I'm glad to have seen it come up in a different context. I think I think the friendship paradox is is a beautiful example of this sort of sampling bias, the sort of misperception you get if you just look at. Um, uh, your own experience. I have to say that the most extreme example of that, which I talk about in the book, is the anthropic, is, is anthropic bias, the anthropic paradox, where um, the universe has to be like what it is now. We see a particular kind of universe because it was very, if it was very different, we wouldn't have existed to see it. So it's exactly the same, the same sort of distortion going. Yeah, yeah that is a great analogy or a great um, connection between what we normally think of as a statistical question and what we normally think of as a philosophical question. You also take a ser more serious turn in this chapter to discuss the Challenger disaster. Now, the story of O-ring seal failure at low temperature may be familiar to a lot of listeners, but as you tell it, this is at root a story of dark data. So could you give us that perspective and that story? I, 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 think, I think that's right. It, it's exactly really a fundamentally a, a story of dark data. Um, the point, okay. The, the Challenger launch had been postponed six or seven times. Uh, there was a lot of pressure on not postponing again, partly because there was a presidential State of the Union the next day, partly because there was a lot of attention on it, because there was a school teacher going up in, in, in the Challenger, a lot of attention. They wanted to go ahead, so they had a, a teleconference. The different organizations involved had a teleconference the night before saying, should, should we go ahead? And one of the most important pieces of data that they looked at for that was a plot of O-ring failure against air temperature during the launch. Um, this plot showed, well, it shows seven data points. I've reproduced it in the book. Um, and it apparently showed no relationship between air temperature and, and um, O-ring failure. Even, you know, they suspected there might be one, which is why they're holding the teleconference. But you look at the data, there doesn't appear to be a relationship. So they decided to go ahead with the launch, which with the consequences everybody knows. Um, but there was something fundamentally missing from the plot, from the diagram, the graph they looked at. It was obviously dark data. The graph showed um, number of O-rings. At each launch, it showed the number of O-rings which had failed and plotted against temperature. Yeah, so there were several, there were five, in fact, which failed um, which had one O-ring failure, one which had three O-ring failures, another one with the highest temperature launch had two O-ring failures. Um, but there's something funny about that graph, and I would expect a statistician or a data scientist poring over that graph to have spotted something funny. What was funny was that it appeared to show that on no launches was there, were there no O-ring failures. Every launch had at least one, possibly more, O-ring failures. Now, that's a bit odd. You would expect some launches just by chance not to have no, not to have any problems. And in fact, there were a whole load of launches which did have no problems and which weren't included. The dots didn't include, the points weren't included on that graph. If you include them, suddenly the picture changes completely. And now there is a very clear relationship between air temperature and the possibility, probability of O-ring stress. And, and it's a very clear graph showing that the probability of O-ring stress increases dramatically with decreasing air temperature. And since the forecast air temperature was way below, extrapolating beyond the data, was way below, below the launch temperature of any previous launch, I think if they had seen the complete data, including these dark data, 
about launches which hadn't had any problems, they would not have gone ahead with the launch. Seeing the comparison of the two plots in the text, now I think I've known this story or read this story carefully many, many years ago, but seeing those two plots against each other was still a profound experience. Exactly. uh, When when I've given, as it were, live talks showing those two plots, you know, the audience gasps because it it just hits you. Obviously, you shouldn't launch. Whereas, uh, because they didn't get all of the data, because some of the data was concealed, it was dark. um, They felt it was safe to go ahead. So in the next chapter, you discuss data collection. And in the beginning, and I love taxonomies, so I'll keep coming back to them, you describe three strategies of data collection, census, survey, and experiment. So I wonder if you could recap those. <laughs> okay. Um, census I've used as a, as a sort of general term. You measure everything. You want to know about the people in a town, so you go out and ask each of You want to know their age, you go and ask each of them their age. Or, or you want to know about animals on a farm, and you go and measure every, all of those animals. Now that's okay, and you can often do that, provided the, the, the population of whatever it is you're trying to study is not too large. I have to say there are some circumstances where measuring everything doesn't make sense. If I want to measure the weight of something, I can take a number of measurements on it and use the average, but I can't take all of the measurements on it because you know I could go on measuring its weight an infinite number of times. So, but that's what census means. It means measuring everything. Given that you can't always measure everything because it doesn't make sense or it might be too expensive, you measure a sample. You just measure some of them. Now, you can immediately think, well, this is a dark data risk, isn't it? Because if I'm measuring some, I'm not measuring others. But statisticians have developed clever ways of sampling, determining what your sample should be so that you can get very accurate estimates of the entire population characteristic from just your sample. You can put error bounds on it. You can say, I'm 99% confident that the weight lies between these two intervals. So that's the notion of survey, where you just measure some. It's got to be some carefully chosen, um, but statisticians can tell you how to do that. And then the final category of data collection is the experiment. In, In the census and the survey, you just measure what's out there. You go and ask people their age and write it down. Or you, 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 you see whether if the disease is getting worse or whatever. In an experiment, you manipulate the circumstances. You give them a different treatment or you make, give them a higher dose of a treatment or you, or you put them on a weight loss diet or, or, or something. So you're now controlling what you're doing. This allows you to um, investigate things which what are called observational data in censuses or surveys where you just measure what's out there you can't do. So experimental data, it enables you to explore um, causal effects, if you like. So those three methods, census survey and experiment. So diving into one of those cases, one of those data collection strategies, like most school children, in the States anyway, I learned about the Chicago Daily Tribune's famously mistaken Dewey defeats Truman headline. In the book, you recount a different instance of a mistaken presidential election forecast from the Literary Digest in 1936. And I wonder if you could tell that story and the winding ways in which it was eventually resolved. (laughs) Yeah, this was the um, Roosevelt-Landon election. And the polls had predicted that Landon would have a, a, a runaway victory. It didn't happen like that, as I imagine 
the, the listeners know far better than I, I uh, Roosevelt won uh, with, with, a, with a, a sort of massive victory. Um, the explanation for the weakness of the polls is that uh, the sampling was done by telephone. People, uh, the, the investigators rang up people to say which way are you likely to vote in the forthcoming election. And at that time, phones tended to be owned by wealthier people, um, so that and, and which, which tended to vote more, more vote Republican. So it looked as if, and this is the popular story, um, because of the way they used phone um, methods to, to find people's likely vote intentionals intentions, there was a vote uh, there was a, a bias towards Republicans. That's the popular explanation which is often put out. But in fact, um, the people conducting the poll were very aware of that sort of bias and compensated for it. But what they didn't do, in fact, they sent out 10 million poll, um, 10 million uh, letters saying which way are you likely to vote. Um, and, and in fact, only 2.3 million, about a quarter of the number, responded. Um, through the phone or, or, or otherwise. So it seems that it, they just, they missed three quarters of the data uh, of the respondents, the potential respondents, and they were biased. The, the quarter they did get were not quite like the three quarters they didn't get, and that was the real explanation. There have been statistical studies of this which showed it. Um, and, and there are various reasons for that, you know, um, um, perhaps people, the more motivated people are more likely to respond to surveys. So there's a, there's a, a potential intrinsic built-in um, bias here. Can, can I um, momentarily come back to um, experimental trials? For, yes, please for, do. For a moment? Um, experimental trials, let me take clinical trials as an example where we're comparing, and, and this shows you how, how you have to think very carefully. Uh, let's take a clinical trial. You're comparing two drugs, drug A and drug B. So how do you do it? What you do is you take a group of people and you randomly assign some of them to have group A, some of them to have group B, so that there's no sort of expected difference. You, know, you won't get all the men in one group and females in the other. You can, you're controlling for that by the random assignment. The chance of getting it completely unbalanced is very, very small. So, so you know what you're doing. But there are subtleties here which involve dark data. And there are two, and this is often not taught, there are two fundamentally different kinds of clinical trial called explanatory and pragmatic. In uh, an explanatory trial, what you're trying to do is find out if, if the drug works biologically, physiologically, does it, does it decrease the intensity of the disease or whatever, you know, does it cure people? Biologically, does it work? In a pragmatic trial, in contrast, you're trying to find out, does the drug work in real life as people use it? Because the fact is, people forget to take the medication. They, they give up taking it in it if it doesn't seem to be having an effect. So the, may, maybe it has a biological effect, but in real life, because of these other factors, it's not any good at all. So when you're conducting a clinical trial, when you're designing a clinical trial, you should ask yourself right at the beginning, Am I trying to find out a biological mechanism? Does it work in, in, you know, biologically speaking, physiologically? Or am I trying to find out whether it will help people in real life? And those two kinds of things involve different levels of dark data. And you need to think very carefully about what question you're trying to answer. And I have to say, in some sense, that little sentence underpins everything we're talking about today. 
you have to stand back and say, exactly what question am I trying to answer? Because different data are appropriate for answering different questions. And dark data may have an impact on one question and not on the other. So that's the fundamental thing you should say. Formulate the question as precisely as you can. Otherwise, like the explanatory pragmatic distinction shows, you can go horribly astray. Now, chapter three introduces an issue less commonly thought of as one of missingness, and that is discrepancies between definitions. You discuss in particular, among other examples, the problem of calculating long-term international migration from the EU to the UK, which I thought was a really helpful case study. So if you want to talk about some of the other examples, I'd welcome it. But I wonder if you could begin by talking through this case. Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, this is a, this has been a hot topic in the uh, UK over the last few years. It was one of the primary things which led to the Brexit vote, uh, that the UK leaving the European Union. Um, so immigration has been a hot topic. And there have been the traditional way the, of, of calculating immigration is that the, the Office for National Statistics carries out surveys as people come through ports. What, what are your intentions? Um, I have to say right at the beginning, migration is a difficult thing to estimate because you've got to decide what you mean by a migrant, an immigrant. Is it someone who stays for 12 months? Is it someone who stays for two months, 10 years or, or, or forever? What exactly do you mean by migrant? And also because people can change their mind. They might say when they're coming in, oh, I'm going to stay for a couple of months and then stay for a year. Or, or they might plan to stay for a year and then leave after two months. So there are all sorts of issues. Uh, it's, not a, it's, not, it, it, it's a tough problem. But one of the politicians who was very much in favour of uh, the UK leaving the European Union, Nigel Farage, said these, in, these survey statistics are very unreliable, but there is a very reliable figure which tells you how many immigrants there are, and those are the people applying for national insurance numbers. National insurance numbers are what enable you to work so that you can pay your tax and, and get NHS medical treatment and all those sorts of things. Um, and so people who want to work have got one of these numbers. And these national insurance numbers seem to show the numbers registering for such a number were much larger than the numbers estimated from the International Passenger Survey of people coming into the UK. So Nigel Farage said, clearly the survey numbers are totally nonsense. The numbers are, in fact, much bigger than that. So statisticians looked at this closely. It turned out that the definitions of what you mean by migrant are very different in the two things, using the sorts of issues that I described earlier. You know, how long are people planning to stay? What if they change their mind? All these sorts of, sorts of issues. And the two things are... The definitions are completely different. You can't just adjust one to get the other. You can't say, well, I'll leave out these people and I'll get that number. It, it, they are completely different. So you have, this, is, this comes back to the point I made earlier. You have to ask yourself exactly what question am I trying to answer before you can decide which of these is the appropriate one to use. Um, so let, let me give you another a more topical example of definitions. COVID, of course. Um, COVID death rates are published every day on the, on the web and, uh, and in newspapers, and different countries have got dramatically different death rates. But one of the problems is that they're, even for something, you would expect differences for infection rates, because what do you mean by infection? Has you, have you actually been tested and so on? 
But death, you would think, well, that's pretty clear. They've lived or they, you know, they're alive or they're dead. It, you, it, there's no sort of argument about this. It's clear if someone's died. But again, even, even then, there are different ways of measuring COVID death rates. First obvious thing is, did they die, did they die of COVID or with COVID? Now, you're going to get different numbers if you adopt the different definitions there. Did they have a formal diagnostic test that it was COVID that killed them? Or were they just showing symptoms and they happened to die? You know, they were coughing and, and, and so on. Um, are all deaths included in the count or are, are, um, are many missed? Um, you know, people dying in their own home and, not, and you don't know why they died or people just disappearing or, or perhaps people in care homes. And so, so there are all sorts of different ways that the counts can be put together depending upon how you define it. Um, in fact, uh, I've got a, a nice little example of this is the worldometers produce death counts of um, fatality counts of, of um, COVID statistics. And I look back at to the May counts. And by the 28th of May, the UK had um, 267,000 cases and 37,000 deaths. It's 267 cases and 37,000 deaths while Russia had 380 cases, but only 4,000 deaths. Now, you know, it might be that the Russian death rate was far lower than the UK death rate, but I think it's much more likely that they were counting what they meant by a death from COVID in different ways, and that Russians were not picking up a lot of the cases that the UK would have counted as a COVID death. So even something as straightforward as death from a particular disease is vulnerable to people using different definitions. Yeah, and if I may comment, one of the interesting phenomena about seeing these books on data and algorithms popping up pretty frequently in the popular press is that the issues they raise, which have been more or less silent for several years, are also starting to pop out in the major news outlets. So the, the issue you're describing of, of definitional differences in how we measure COVID cases, deaths, and spread have been a lot more visible in the press, by my estimation, than similar issues, uh, for instance, dealing with immigration were five or 10 years ago in the States, at least. Hmm. I, I think that's exactly right. People are becoming very aware of these issues. I have to say, uh, this poses me with something of a dilemma, because I want to say, and indeed the Dark Data book is, is saying, look, you, you, you have to be careful. You have to think very carefully about what you want to know, how you're collecting the data, where do the data come from? Can you trust, trust the data source? What might you be missing? But I also want to say, look, statistics, data science is a very powerful tool for understanding what's going on. So I want people to, people to be suspicious, but I don't want them to be so suspicious that they dismiss any, any real factual data. You know? So it's a fine balance. Jumping ahead to chapter four, you introduce uh, rounding and other ways to address limits of resolution of instruments that actually record the data that end up being analyzed. And as an introduction to the topic, I hoped you could talk about this wonderful story you tell in the book of a postgraduate student of yours who was researching the effects of adverse weather on telecommunications. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So he, he was studying um, telephone networks. And I guess everybody's sort of wandered down a street and seen one of the boxes with, with a door open and a man working on it. And, and there are a lot that sort of 
nest of wires, multicolored wires all over the place. And, you know, you think, how does anybody make any sense of that? Quite clearly, if water seeped into that, it could have a bad effect on the telecommun on the telephone network. And that's exactly the sort of thing he was looking at, whether storms had um, bad effects on telecommunication networks because it, 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 they damaged the, 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 the sort of infrastructure, the, the hardware. What my student observed was um, that it, it was a very sensible student. The first thing that, okay, the first thing that any data scientist should do when they're presented with a new problem and they worked out what the question is and they've got the data set is look at the data very carefully. Don't say, oh, this is exciting. I'll rush ahead and calculate the correlation coefficient without looking at the data. Because if you do, for all the sorts of reasons explained in the book, you are likely to be misled. Anyway, the student was, was very cautious, very sensible student. So he started to look at the data and he plotted it this way and that way. And he was saved from making a very serious error because he spot, spotted pretty early on that something funny was going on in the data. He spotted that if he, he, spot, he plotted wind speed against time. And it turned out that regularly there were giant gales apparently showing in from the anemometer recordings, huge gales which is very odd because nobody could record a gale happening overnight. You know, maybe they slept through it, but there were a lot of these, so very suspicious. And in fact, um, after some painstaking work, he discovered that what had happened, what happened was that the machine automatically reset itself at midnight every night. And that automatic resetting generated a spurious spike in the data, which you know, it went way beyond any sensible measure. If he hadn't noticed that, if he'd gone ahead and analyzed the data, he would have been completely misled and drawn completely the wrong conclusions. So, you know, the, the, the moral there is, as I said, once you've worked out what the question is, you've got the data, resist that temptation to succumb to the excitement and rush ahead with fitting a neural network to it or whatever it happens to be. Study the data, look for anomalies. Is there something funny? Are there missing data? Have all the missing values recorded been recorded as 99? So that when you calculate someone's age, when you calculate the average age, you get a grossly inflated idea of the average age. Look at the data very carefully. In fact, this problem of spurious correlations and associations being mined from uh, real world data is a common problem. And in part, Somewhere in, in this chapter, you also describe this informal hierarchy of sources of unusual patterns that data mining uh, analysts have identified, and you rank them by likelihood. And I thought this was very compelling. So I wonder if you could yes. just rattle through yeah. those. So, so data miners say that the causes... So what they're doing, basically, is the objective of what they're doing is try to find interesting, anomalous, unusual, valuable structures in large data sets. That's what their objective is. And what they've discovered after sort of years of painful experience is that the cause of interesting, unusual, anomalous structures in data are in decreasing order of likelihood. First, there's a problem with the data. Some kind of dark data is corrupting the data, so you are being misled. Second, the structures are just chance. They are, in fact, due to random fluctuation. That little cluster of disease, of disease in a particular case, is just chance that there isn't a sudden disease outbreak. Third, they turn out to be known about beforehand. People buy cheese and crackers together. You know, a great discovery. The machines trawled through the data and found this, and you write it up in your paper. People buy cheese and crackers together, and everybody says, well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> we knew that. 
And then uh, fourthly, the final reason is, and this is all before you get to, you know, yes, it's an important discovery. The fourth thing is that they are uninteresting. You find that, for example, approximately half of the married people in America are men and half are women. Well, yes. Actually, I have to say that one of my favorite examples of this sort of thing was the discovery by an automated anomaly detection pattern, detection data mining system, that ups and downs in time series, like stock market values, alternated. So I, I had a wonderful example of this. I happened to be listening to the weather forecast on the radio, and I heard the forecaster say, tomorrow is going to be a, we're going to have periods of wet spells with dry spells in between. <laughs> well, if two wet spells occurred one next to the other, it would just be a one longer wet spell. So you must have, and this automated system had discovered that maxima and minima are alternated, which I thought was wonderful. That's <laughs> <laughs> great. All right. So uh, moving on to chapter five, you focus on gaming feedback and information asymmetry. One of the one of another widely known concern, widely discussed concern that you cover in this chapter is variably called Campbell's Law or Goodhart's Law. One of those I was familiar with, the other not. Uh, so could you introduce us to those uh, concepts and what they refer to? Yeah. So Campbell's Law says the more any quantitative social indicators used for social decision making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures and the more apt it will be to distort and corrupt the social processes it's intended to monitor. And as you say, Goodhart's law is, is similar. It says, sort of a bit milder, it says when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And the point of this is that you, you want to understand the system you're studying, social system or whatever it happens to be. So you say, I am going to measure these things. And once it becomes known that you are focusing on measuring those things, people will work towards, towards the measurement. If you decide that we are going to... Um, use child mortality as a measure of the well-being of a, of a nation. People can work towards minimizing child mortality and maybe the cancer rates and people dying of cancer go up because all the resources are put, being put into, into child mortality. So, and then, and then the measurement ceases to become a good measure of the well-being of the society because it's missing things out. The point is that um, once you focus on a particular thing, it distorts the overall uh, uh, the overall system. Um, the basic problem is that, that people work towards the measure, perhaps at a cost of other aspects. I, I have a nice example of this. Um, I think um, Donald Trump came up with this nice example. Um, to minimize the number of apparent cases of COVID-19, how do you do that? Well, you reduce the amount of testing you do. Ah, spot on. That's obviously the right way to minimize the number of cases that you have. Oh, an interesting kind of inverse example where you normally the phenomenon is you want to start measuring something that you care about and that thing that you're measuring, that measurement then becomes what gets what gets addressed instead of whatever underlying problems are causing the emergence yes. of that phenomenon. And here we have the reverse situation. I think that's that's exactly right. Um, um, that That is the fundamental problem. Yes, spot on. Yeah, yeah. So I also happened to read recently Deborah Magak's novel, Tulip Fever, which I enjoyed and which takes place amidst the, the, the famous du uh, Dutch tulip market bubble. You describe in this chapter what might have been a much more consequential bubble in the 1700s, having to do with speculation over natural resources in the French-American colonies. 
Could you regale us with the story of Scottish yeah. economist John Law? Yes, I, I didn't know much about this before I started working on the book and, and tripped over this guy. And it's quite extraordinary. I've subsequently bought a couple of biographies of him. So he was a Scottish economist. He came from a wealthy family of bankers. And he, he, he killed another man in a duel and escaped to the continent. Um, and while he was there, he came from a wealthy background, um, he persuaded the French government to let him set up a bank which would issue paper banknotes backed by the bank's reserves of gold and silver, of precious metals, um, which was successful. But then French, the wars which were going on at the time left the, the French economy in tatters, and John Law proposed novel idea to replace gold and silver backing of banknotes by shares in economic ventures. So notions of shares coming in. He set up something called the Mississippi Company to do that. Um, and initially, the Mississippi Company did very well. It was investing in America. There were all sorts of <laughs> all sorts of rumors about the vast wealth that would, could come from the Americas, you know, the, the mineral resources and uh, and so on. So the company did very well, and shares went up, you know, twenty times in a year, a factor of twenty in a year, went up six, a factor of sixty altogether. Really quite extraordinary. Um, but as everybody, I think, is aware, these sorts of things, you know, what goes up must come down. And when um, it became obvious that uh, the promise wasn't quite being fulfilled as much as that people had hoped, stairs, shares stopped going up so much, started to fall. And once they start to fall, people say, right, well, I better cash in on this and sell my shares. And suddenly, you, you're, you know, the, the, the things uh, collapsed and, and the company was wiped out. Um, John Law, very extraordinary character. Um, eventually, he... he uh, he, he died in poverty in Italy, I think it was in Italy, um, but quite extraordinary character. Um, Jumping ahead to chapter six, fraud and deception, uh, or what you call intentional dark data, you examine several examples that deal in particular with what, what, what might be called an arms race between tools used to commit fraud and tools used to detect and prevent fraud. I wonder if you could describe some of these examples, but also, in your view, how do are there common patterns that they exhibit? Is there a recurring theme here, similar or that justifies my calling it an arms race? Yeah, I, I, I think I think it is justified to call it an arms race because uh, what happens is that people develop innovations. They might be social innovations. They might be technolo technological innovations to try to prevent fraud. You've got to have a signature, you've got to have a secret password, a code, two secret passwords, you know, all, all, all these sorts of things. Um, but as I sometimes put it, when you stop a particular avenue of fraud, the fraudsters don't think, well, well, you got me, I'm going to give up, I'm going to open a bookshop instead. What they do is think, right, I'm going to find a way around this, I'm going to find some other way to perpetrate fraud. And so they then do that. So that then you have to shift your attention to stopping that kind of fraud. And so, you know, it, it, it goes on getting, I have to say, more elaborate uh, over the course of time. Um, credit cards illustrate this sort of thing. In the old days, it, when they first came out, you, you had an imprint of the number, embossed number on the card and a physical signature. Then you had a magnetic stripe and you would swipe the card through, through a card reader. Um, then you had um, uh, pins, uh, 
personal identification numbers uh, and, and you had contactless. So the technology keeps advancing to try to stop people. On, on the other hand, people are trying to break the advancing technology. So it, it is very much a, a sort of leapfrog, a, a, a sort of arms race. And I have to say, the thing about fraud is that um, you'll never win. Uh, a fraud will always be with us because there are, will be people who, who are determined to do it. Uh, um, there's, a, there's a sort of Pareto law, which I think applies here. You, you can't, in, in principle, you could stop fraud. If you spent vast sums of money, you could stop fraud, but it's not worth spending a billion dollars to stop one dollar worth of fraud. So you have to accept the compromise, a sort of balance somewhere. Um, and so in the framework of dark data, um, how does fraud detection work? How does fraud commission work? What's being concealed or, or hidden and what's being revealed, uncovered? Yeah. yeah. So, so fraudsters are trying to hide from you the fact that what you see is not the reality. They're trying to conceal from you that the bank account you're about to transfer a large sum of money to is not really a legitimate bank account. Um, you, on the other hand, are trying to... So, so, so they're using, as it were, dark data. They're trying to mislead you there. And you're conversely using dark data. You, you, you will keep your... Um, you will have a secret password. That's dark data. You certainly don't want people to know about that. So dark data manifests itself on, on both sides, on both sides of, of this sort of battle. So now jumping to chapter seven, and I could spend hours on this. I love this chapter. It's on the nature of discovery in science. Uh, but just to take a couple of your uh, a couple of your sections in detail, zeroing in on the nature of scientific discovery. In one section, you recount several episodes from the history of science, including Einstein's cosmological constant and Hoyle's steady state universe hypothesis that illustrate what I would describe as the catalytic role of competing theories. And I love the way you describe them, but in particular, how do they play into this dark data framework as well? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, if, if, we, if we have two scientific theories which both purport to explain a, a phenomenon, um, what we need to do is decide which is right. Now, how are we going to decide which is right? What we're going to do is collect some evidence and see if both of the theories predict that evidence. Um, evidence is synonymous with data here. We're going to collect some data and see if both of those theories or one of them fails to predict it and one does predict it. That's how we're going to distinguish between these theories and decide one, which one is more likely to be correct. Um, so at this stage, we haven't yet collected our data. We're going to collect it. So at the moment, that data is concealed. It's hidden. It's dark data. We make it, we shine a light on it. We make it apparent. We go out and measure the mass of the subatomic particle or whatever it happens to be. And that tells us, well, this theory can't be right because it predicted a completely wrong mass, whereas this one, it got it right. So that's more likely to be correct. So what we're doing here is, uh, if, if we're going to use this analogy of shining a light, uh, uh, it's like the headlights of a car, you know, and, and indeed, you're driving along the road at night, your headlights are out there in front of you, you can see what's, you know, as, as you progress, you can see more and more of the road. And the road is becoming visible, the data are becoming apparent in, in, in just the same sort of way. Now, also in this chapter, you have a discussion of the so-called replication crisis or reproducibility crisis in science. 
This might be familiar to many listeners as well, and I really appreciated your take on it. As ever, the reality is much more complicated than the popular narrative. And I wanted you to, if you would, talk a bit about how you understand this sudden visibility of non-replicability in science and what you think these recent high-profile reproducibility studies have exposed. I think it's certainly the case that certain scientific domains do have a reproducibility problem. Social psychology, I think, does. And I think what has been revealed here is um, the prim- one of the primary causes is, if you like, the automatic use of statistical tools. Now, I entirely understand that people would like a handle to turn to feed their data in and get an answer out. Yes, this is likely to be true or no, this does not conform with the data. I entirely understand that. After all, they're experts. They've spent their lives developing expertise and understanding of some particular application domain. It might be social psychology. It might be some aspect of medicine. It might be some aspect of physics or something. They don't have the time to become experts in statistics and data science as well. So I entirely understand the desire. But unfortunately, as my comments about you've got to decide exactly what the question is before you start. As that demonstrates, automated statistics doesn't really work. Um, Just because you're using statistical methods doesn't mean that you can disconnect your brain. You really have to think very carefully about what do I want to know? Is this an appropriate statistical tool to answer that? Even even, um, statistical tools which are often described as um, alternatives if they're different statistical rules, they will in fact be answering slightly different questions. So if you used one, you could well be making a mistake when you really wanted the answer to the other one. So I think that one of the fundamental problems, uh, one of the fundamental causes of the reproducibility crisis is the perfectly understandable, but regrettable desire for automatic use of statistical tools. They collect their data, they throw it into some sort of significance test, compare it with a p, p value of point oh, with a value of a threshold of 0.05 and say significant, not significant, and then write it up as I have made this discovery, rather than putting it in a bigger context and thinking, was that a sensible threshold? Was this an appropriate test? How many things did I test overall? You'd expect one of them to come up by significant by chance or, or, or whatever. So that you have to be cautious. And this, if you like, plays into the big dark data perspective. You have to be cautious. Now, we've been discussing the chapters that comprise part one of the book, which is your exposition on the different types of dark data that you've taxonomized. Before we get into part two, where you address ways of handling and taking advantage of dark data, I wanted to take an interlude and say, The hallmark of a good thesis is that the reader sees familiar ideas with fresh eyes. And reading this part really got me thinking about several familiar topics in new ways. So I wondered if we could jump through a couple of topics that might be familiar to listeners and have you give a sort of dark data perspective on them. One is a recent, I think, well-produced, although not completely uh, accurate depiction of the Chernobyl disaster um, produced by HBO. And the specific case that I would point to is the instance that 
the cheap uh, decimeters used within the power plant for the most part measured up to 3.6 Runkins per hour. And this is a measure of the radiation emitted per volume of air over a given unit of time. And the amount, the risk to humans of this released radiation was written up as 3.6 because that's how high the measurement devices went. When more advanced decimeters were used, the measurements skyrocketed. So what is the dark data take on this? What, what's, where does this fall in your taxonomy? Yeah, I, I, that, that is a wonderful example. It, it really is, is spot on to, to um, the, the fundamental problems with the, with the measuring instrument, the way you're, you're measuring something where it's, it's um, truncated or, or rounded or whatever, in this case, truncated. Uh, um, it's, if you like, it's summarizing the data in a way which does not enable you to answer the question you want to answer. And I think it's a beautiful example. It's exactly what I understood as well, that of the two dosimeters which could measure more, one was buried and the other didn't work when it was turned on. The others all behaved like this. They had a maximum value and um, that's what they recorded. It's like, you know, if a very heavy person gets on bathroom scales, and I don't know what the scales go up to, but they have a maximum and so you get on the bathroom scales and it says, oh, that's my weight. Whereas, in fact, your weight could be twice that. But, you know, there's a limit to, to, to what the scales can show. And, and this works in, in all sorts of directions, of course. Mercury thermometers won't tell you a temperature reading below the freezing point of mercury. You can say, you know, whatever the freezing point of mercury, oh, that's the temperature. But you would be wrong. It could be a great deal less than that. And uh, all sorts of, you know, every measurement, measuring instrument has to have limits. Um, and uh, I think this is a beautiful example of that sort of phenomenon. And exactly as you say, the catastrophes, the, dis the, the problems that it can lead to, that you know, people would have got massive overdoses of radiation because of these misleading uh, meters and obviously with terribly detrimental con consequences. So another example of instrumentation um interfacing with dark data is the recent LIGO experiments that have measured gravitational waves for the first time. This has been heralded as a new kind of astronomy. Where does this ability to detect previously undetectable signals fall? Yeah, I, I, this is oh, it's a very exciting sort of, sort of area, a new kind of astronomy. I, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's, um, it, must be, it must be as exciting as when optical astronomy shifted over to radio astronomy exactly the same sort of thing and it, it comes back to my observation that there's always dark data while let me come back to measuring people because it's a simple a simple example i can measure for people i can measure their height their weight their iq their salary their walking speed i can measure all sorts of things but i can't measure everything that just doesn't make sense people have any number of characteristics an infinite number of characteristics i can't measure everything so there are inevitably, inevitably going to be some things I don't measure. And it could be that if I were to measure those, I would make all sorts of discoveries, like uh, gravitational waves in astronomy. Once I've spotted that there is this characteristics, once I've developed the technology to measure it, it opens up whole new worlds. And finally, one setting that I'm kind of surprised it didn't occur to me to think of in a statistical way before is um, popular elections. 
your book got me thinking of the upcoming U.S. elections as a kind of statistical summary. You you run an election, you elect a one of multiple candidates, and that candidate, the choice of candidate, is a way of summarizing the data comprising every person's vote. But that can get complicated when you dig into who votes, who's able to vote, which votes are counted, whether there are whether votes are misrepresented in some way. And so a couple of high profile controversies in the U.S. have been electronic ballot tampering as um, national security experts have worried could be done uh, by foreign actors located in the states and disenfranchisement. Uh, legal restrictions or burdens placed on people to prevent them from voting or from voting in the numbers they otherwise would. So can this be thought of in a dark data perspective? I, I Very much so. And I think the examples you've given are, are, are spot on. And, and another one, of course, is, is ma- male voting, which is very topical at the moment with, with arguments about whether it's likely to lead to massive fraud or, or, or whatever. Um, and, and there are all sorts of other aspects that dark ways dark data manifests itself in election. In the UK, we occasionally have debates about restructuring electoral boundaries. And of course, a, a party in power could, if it chose so, if it chose to do so, restructure the boundaries so that it had massive support in the future. And I think this is illustrated by your last presidential election, the US last presidential election, when Donald Trump had, near, I believe, nearly 3 million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton overall. So he lost the popular vote. But because of the way the the states and the electoral boundaries were were constructed and and who was at the electoral college, who was allowed to vote and so on, uh, he he won the election. So it is a statistical summary, but it is very influenced by dark data of the way the data are collected, the way they are combined, the way the averages, if you like, are calculated, the way the proportions are calculated and so on. So I think, yeah, Dark data issues just go all the way through I- I election data. I have to say also, you can um, once upon a time I made a little study of, of um, fraud in, in 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 elections, and again, when you look at the data carefully, in many cases you can spot anomalies in distributions. You know, you, you would expect the distributions to have certain form, certain shapes. And there's a glitch there. There's some spike there, or, or there's a long tail where there shouldn't be a long tail. Or these these sorts of these sorts of things. So you can spot if if you know the sort of thing you're looking for, you can spot that elect, elections are, are fraudulent if and when they are. So now we arrive at part two, where you examine two broad ways in which a dark data perspective can be leveraged to account for missingness or other unobservability problems when drawing conclusions. And to induce, or sorry, introduce missingness as a way of addressing other statistical problems. To begin with, in chapter eight, shining a light, as you put it, you give what I think is a very, very important and helpful, popularly accessible presentation of Rubin's taxonomy of missingness. I studied this years back and got confounded for hours before realizing what it was Rubin was trying to communicate with this taxonomy. So could you present your rebranding? What are the types okay. of missingness that can arise in data? All right. I, I won't give Rubin's names because we, we don't have time, but what I call them are, hmm. uh, let's start with the easiest, not data dependent, then seen data dependent, then unseen data dependent. So I call them NDD, SDD, and UDD for short. Not data dependent is when data are missing for reasons 
unconnected with the thing you're trying to explore, the question you're trying to answer. So if you're trying to um, look at average income or something like that, people might not reply to your survey because they moved house or, or, or for reasons totally unconnected. It wasn't that the richer people didn't reply or anything like that, just, just random. In that case, you can say, well, it's as if I had a smaller sample than the one I wanted to collect. So I can just go ahead and ignore the fact that I've got missing data. Straightforward, not data dependent. With seen data dependent, whether something is missing or not depends upon an observation you did make. So, for example, I might be measuring in a clinical trial, I might measure blood pressure over the course of time. And it might be the case that people whose blood pressure drops below a certain level tend to drop out of the study. So they don't come back for another blood pressure measurement. In that case, I can look at the relationship amongst the data I have got and see that someone whose blood pressure is likely to drop out. I, I can see that someone whose blood pressure drops low is likely to drop out and I can predict from the data I have got what their blood pressure would have been, if you like. So I can try to overcome the fact that I'm missing data based on the data I have got. The book explains this in a more comprehensive way than I'm explaining it briefly now. That was seen data dependent. And then you have unseen data dependent. And this is the really tough one. This is where whether something is observed or not depends upon the value it would have had had you observed it. So maybe people, if I'm measuring income, maybe people whose income is very large don't want to tell you that. So if you just ignore them, clearly you get a downward bias estimate of income. And if you haven't got any way of relating what their income was to things you have observed, you're stuck. So in this case, um, this is a particularly tough one. You have to try to get information from elsewhere. You might look at other surveys or you might look at how much tax they pay or, 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 or whatever. So you, you, have to, you have to get other sources of data or you might make assumptions about distributional shapes or something. You might know that for salaries and incomes and wealth, there's a long tail to the distribution and you might model it using that, but you need information from elsewhere. So we've got not data dependent, easy to deal with, seen data dependent, relate what you don't see to what you do see, unseen data dependent, you have to go somewhere else to get the get information. Now, in addition to a variety of imputation methods in this chapter, you also have a concluding section on erroneous data. And so I was going to ask if you could discuss the, the bad data detectors use of a fun phenomenon I only recently come across in my own work, Benford's Law. Ah, yes. Yeah, Benford's Laws certainly is a wonderful thing, I think, especially when you first come across it, you think, wow, okay. So for certain distributions, the classic is lengths of rivers, but we could take all sorts of things, population sizes of countries or, or anything like naturally occurring data. You might say to yourself, well, the population of a city might be a million, it might be 10,000, it might be 10 million, whatever. I would expect the number, when I look at these numbers, I would expect about the same number to begin with a one million, 10 million, as within a two, 200,000, 20,000, two million, as with the three, 300,000, three million, whatever, I would expect about 10% of these numbers to start with each, 9% because none of them are going to start with zero, 11% because none of them are going to start with zero, about the same numbers to start with each of those digits. But in fact, if you look at these naturally occurring data sets, you find that's not the case. About 30% of these numbers start with one. 
a smaller number start with two and it goes down to what nine or something percent um uh, it goes down to a smaller value uh, 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 at nine so you've got this gradually gradual decay and benford's law shows well it shows you the shape of that distribution it has uh, people mathematicians have developed uh, the shape that it, it has it is likely to have which matches very closely with um with with data in fact i i um I, I once did a big um, anti-money laundering project with one of the major um, investment banks. And um, one of the tools that we applied was Benford's law. We looked at the sizes of financial tra transactions. And I have to say, I have never seen numbers with so many zeros with a pound or dollar sign at the front in my life as some of these transactions. Um, but we looked at Benford's law to try to spot um, anomalies. The way that you can use Benford's law here is, for example, it, uh, to, to prevent money laundering, um, the authorities often require that large transactions are split up into small ones. You can't just pay in vast sum of money without someone getting suspicious. So what the fraudsters do is split it up into lots of transactions. And the threshold value for people to look at it, for the authorities to look at it, is $10,000. So the fraudsters are likely to split it up into numbers less than $10,000, like $9,999 or something like that. That begins with a nine. So if we were to plot a histogram of the first digits, we would expect them to accord to Benford's law. But in fact, when I have a, a project produced a plot which showed this anomalous spike on nine, there were too many transactions just below the, the threshold when the authorities would get interested. Something funny was going on. So now jumping to chapter nine, uh, where you address uh, methods of using dark data to design study or analytic tools. There's a lot we could go through. And in particular, I enjoyed the simple reframing of the idea of classical sampling, subset sampling, as choosing an amount of data to ignore, as opposed to choosing an amount of data to study. You also give a more detailed discussion of various uh, machine learning techniques, Bayesian priors, bootstrapping, boosting. So I wonder if you could describe one of these from a dark data viewpoint. Yeah, okay. So some of these techniques can be thought of as using data that you might have collected but didn't collect. And it's those, that, that data that you might have collected that, but didn't is, of course, dark data. So let's take boosting as an example. Uh, the, the problem domain here is one of classification. What we're trying to do is diagnose whether someone is suffering from a particular illness, say, and we're going to do that based on a number of tests and characteristics we've taken on this person. And we've done that for lots and lots of people. So we have a, a data set showing the characteristics of the people. And yes, they've got the disease or no, they haven't got the disease. And what our aim is, is to build a mathematical uh, a decision surface which will discriminate between, on the one hand, people with the characteristics, which mean they have got the disease, and on the other, people with the characteristics, which mean they haven't got the disease. But it's always the case with these sorts of problems in real life that there are errors. Some people are on the wrong side of the decision surface. Our aim is to find the best place for this decision surface, but you're always going to get some wrong. What boosting does is it starts with a simple decision surface. You fit it and it gets some wrong. So you look at the ones that it got wrong and you make copies of them. You make data that you could have got but didn't get. So it's as if you've got lots, lots more 
copies of the ones that extra data describing as if you've got more cases for the ones you got wrong. Then you use the neural network or whatever it happens to be, again, on this inflated data set, the original data set, but, but this created dark data as well, no longer dark data. And you apply the neural network to that. Because you've now got lots of copies of the ones it previously got wrong, it sort of focuses its attention. It tries to get them right so that it reduces the mis overall misclassification rate. So gradually, it gets better and better at classifying correctly the ones it previously got wrong. And, and it, you, you cycle through this a, a whole load of times so that it, it focuses attention by creating data which might have been but which wasn't dark data. Uh, it focuses attention on things and gets things better and better. Now, finally, in Chapter 10, A Route Through the Maze, you present your dark data taxonomy. You also draw an analogy at one point uh, of data thought of as a resource to oil in the, in the classic industrial period. You call data the new oil. Can you describe what you mean here? Yeah, this, this is a, quite a common analogy. I have to say it's one that I am not terribly keen on. The, the point is that the oil drove the industrial revolution, internal combustion engine uh, uh, and so on, we wouldn't have been where we are now, but for oil. Um, so it was, the, it was the primary fuel which drove the, uh, I'm using fuel in a sort of abstract sense, which drove the industrial revolution. Um, it also created vast fortunes for oil barons uh, uh, and so on. And data have been described as the new oil for, for those reasons. It is the fuel driving the technological uh, uh, revolution that we are currently witnessing, the, the internet, computers, and so on. They're all based on data, extracting meaning from data, understanding from data, predicting what's going to happen using data, all these sorts of things. Um, and also, of course, people have made vast fortunes um, through data. So there are, there are similarities. But I think there are also differences which are important to take into account. Um, for example, oil basically is used for one purpose. You burn it. It, 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 it provides energy, which you can use to drive a machine or heat a house or, or, or whatever it happens to be. Data can be used in all sorts of different ways. And once you've burnt oil, it's gone. Once you've used data to answer a particular question, well, you can also use it to answer other questions. In fact, there's no limit to the number of potential questions that you can use to answer data. Also, um, if you sell oil, it's sold, it's no longer yours, but you can sell data to person A and also sell it to person B. You can copy it as many times as you like. You can't do that with oil. So I think there are differences which are we should recognize and go, not go too far with that analogy, but it is certainly true that data are driving the current industrial technological revolution that we're witnessing. No, that is a point well taken. As a way of wrapping up the discussion of your book, I wanted to ask whether you consider dark data to be a unifying framework for data analysis generally, not to say the correct or sole unifying framework, but one that could be used pretty much anywhere you are in the discipline. I, I think that's, um, that's a great insight. Um, I, I think it could be. I, I think it's a beautiful way of looking at it. I would not want to teach a first course in data science or statistics using that framework. But once people who've got some kind of basic understanding of what data science and statistics are all about, then I think that is a very useful and insightful way of, of looking at things. It will uh, mean that they get right answers more often. Um, but let me come back to the point I made earlier. I think even if you don't teach this as the sort of framework, 
tying things together. I think all students of these disciplines should study a module on dark data uh, and, and be aware that once they leave the confines of their university and go out into the real world, the, the, the problems they encounter are going to be beset by dark data. Uh, they, they need to understand that they've got to think carefully. So we've been generous with your time, and I very much appreciate it. To begin wrapping up, I wanted to ask if there's another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours. I do. I think there's one which um, is very good. Caroline Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's absolutely brilliant book. In, a set, in, a, in essence, it focuses on one particular kind or area in which dark data occurs. Uh, uh, the bias against um, women, the unrecognized dark bias against women in all sorts of data sets in society, far too many for me to enumerate here. It's quite, quite a thick book. But really, I would thoroughly recommend that to, to your listeners. Thanks very much. I will make sure to check it out myself as well. Now, the traditional closing question for the New Books Network is to ask, what are you working on now? Okay. What, what I'm working on now, I'm trying, as always, I'm trying to decide what book to write next. I've always got 10 books buzzing around in my head, possible books, and I'm waiting to see which one crystallizes, and I sit down at my keyboard and I'm starting. So that's one thing, trying to decide what book to write next. And the other thing that I'm getting increasingly engrossed in is the fundamental nature of statistical inference. It's related to what we were talking about earlier, the reproducibility crisis uh, and so on. I think there's, there are serious misunderstandings there and it's not obvious what the best way to tackle those misunderstandings is. I mean, the short answer is education, obviously, but, um, you know, that's been a short answer for the last 30 odd years and, uh, maybe more is needed. So that's something I'm working on at the moment. Well, when your next book comes out, I hope to come across it and reach back out to you. And I hope you'll be interested in recording another interview. That would be a great pleasure. This has been a really fun uh, experience. So thank you very much indeed. As it has on my end. I've been talking with David Hand, whose book, Dark Data, what you, Why What You Don't Know Matters, was published this year by Princeton University Press. David, thanks so much for joining me on New Books in Mathematics. Thank you for inviting me onto the program.